Our lesson today is from Acts 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodged with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, sent them to Joppa. The next day, they were on their journey, approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And there were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was Pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man, who is well spoken by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went, went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. 
I ask then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothes, clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I send for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with them after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. And thy spirit. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew in the 28th chapter, beginning at the 18th verse. Glory be to thee, O Lord. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Let's pray. Father, grant to all who come in our midst the full welcome and embrace of the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. 
Amen. You may be seated. Oh, my apologies in advance. I'm, I'm having a cold, but I'll uh, hopefully prayerfully work through this uh, well without coughing. So I uh, recently watched a YouTube video that was made from four years ago, but has been making its rounds again recently. It was viewed over 12 million times now. And the video is titled, Can Israelis and Palestinians See Eye to Eye? So I brought together these three young Israelis and these three young Arab Palestinians to share their perspectives about the ongoing conflict. Everyone in the room, as they were interviewed, they've either they've shared they've either lost someone personally or knows others who have lost someone in the conflict. And their own opinions are far-ranging, with one advocating for Israel to have complete sovereignty and another believing that a two-state government is a possible compromise for peace. As the conversations went about, you can imagine that it was tense, uh, sometimes even aggressive, unavoidably personal and political. As the video went on, it's very clear. There's no middle ground to be made, no space for the two groups to bridge their differences. Now, if six young people from two different sides could not see eye to eye, what more for two different national groups for centuries ongoing now in the middle of warfare? Here's a question for us this morning. Is it easier to include people who are different or to exclude them? Is it easier to include people who are different or to exclude them? Most of history has proven, and it's still proving the case, that it is significantly easier to exclude people who are different. It's easier to exclude and why is that? Because it's unnatural to keep together major differences in the same space for a very long time. It's easier to keep difference away, to get rid of what is different and who is different altogether. And this is still the sad and violent case of our world. See, it's easier to exclude because it means not having to deal with what we don't know or what makes us feel uncomfortable. It means not having to deal with disagreement, with conflict, even bloodshed. It means not having to give up space, not having to share a piece of your pie, not having to learn how to tolerate, not having to do the work to understand, and even to love without condition. Yet, somehow, here we are today, in this church, in a globalized world, enriched with liberal democratic ideals, and we are all trying to do what has been so unnatural for most of history. That is, we're figuring out what it means to do the hard work of tolerating, to understand, to even love without condition. We're trying to make peace. We're trying to make space for conversation and dialogue. It's now even unthinkable, even reprehensible, to consider otherwise. How did the world get to this point from, it was so, from when it was so unnatural to include, when it was so easy to exclude, to now having enshrined into our laws, into our own consciences, 
This moral obligation to welcome, to understand, to embrace, and even uphold difference. A British historian, Tom Holland, not the actor, he concluded that Christianity through millennia had slowly enriched the waters of our world with its radical values. It gradually changed the way we as metaphorical fish swam with each other in the waters inside this bowl that we call the earth. Now, this is what Tom Holland said, quote, Christianity is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. Christianity is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all but thoroughly and proudly Christian, end quote. By saying he's Christian, Holland didn't mean he's a practicing Christian. Holland himself does not believe in a God. And what he means is that he is Christian ethically. And Holland argues that the global majority today, impacted by Western liberal ideals, is unavoidably and unconsciously now Christian. See, let's go back to that video. Uh, with the six Israelis and Palestinians, Holland himself would argue that for these six people to even get together in the same space, to try and have this civil conversation, to work out their differences without using violence, okay? That's arguably an inherited Christian impulse. What was happening there? That was Christian. We are all, whether we say so or not, we are Christian. Not just if you go to church or you say Jesus is Lord. No, but literally everyone in Toronto, everyone in Canada is Christian in that sense. We are people who look at the world through a lens now stained with the ancient residues of Christianity. Where we are now seeing a world that is full of people with inherent and equal value. Where it is in fact nobler to suffer than it is to inflict suffering. Where the weak the poor, the old, the unborn, the babies, the disabled, they must be specially regarded with honor. Where difference and diversity must be held together at all costs, despite the cost and the challenge and the disagreement. Right? See, this residue of Christianity, it had first emerged in real time, in a very real way, in this undramatic um, encounter from today's reading. It's a very long story. This is the story of Peter and Cornelius. For us, it described this very normal, ordinary encounter of a Christian Jew and a Roman person. But at the time, that was culturally impossible, a radical interaction. In the story, the Apostle Peter had been traveling to visit all these few fledgling Christian communities scattered around Israel. And we last see him lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the coast of Joppa. Now, it's easy to miss, but we already see here a very different Peter here from the first time he was following Jesus. Peter, as we know, he's a devout Jew, but he was somehow willing to be hosted by a tanner whose job it is to handle animal carcasses, dead things, dead skins. 
So being a tanner, Simon, a Jew, would have been ostracized by his Jewish community, considered him ritually unclean. But he had to make money, he had to make a living. That was what he did, that was what he knew. And he was pushed to the literal margins of the city of Joppa to live alone by the sea, right? Tanner by the sea. At some point, Simon the Tanner became Christian. And the church in Joppa connected Peter with Simon for a place to crash. Now, for Peter to even crash at Simon's place, Peter, a Jew, had to let go of some of his Jewish prejudices to be with someone who would make him ritually unclean. So already we're seeing here uh, some erosion to Peter's prejudice, right? But, in fact, it did not go deep enough, the erosion of his prejudice. Not yet. See, God is going to do something more about it. Now, the scene jumps to Cornelius. Uh, he, now, he's stationed in Caesarea, another coastal city. It's more than 50 kilometers north of Joppa. Now, Cornelius was this centurion of the Italian regiment. He had command of 100 of the 600 of his legionary cohort. So he's a very well-decorated officer with a lot of command and authority. And he's also a God-fearer, a Yahweh-fearer, meaning he was personally into the Jewish religion and culture. Now, whether he worshipped Yahweh exclusively or as one of the many gods, we don't know for sure. But at least, being an officer, he had to pay homage to Caesar as the son of God. So Cornelius, this guy, is a mixed bag, religiously speaking. He's also a philanthropist. He has a lot of money, but you know what? He gave it a lot away with anyone, to anyone with need, especially to the Jews. Probably built up a lot of synagogues. All of that I've just described about Cornelius, it makes him into this uncomfortable mix of values and identities, right? He stands for the oppressive might of the empire, but was also an ally to the ethnic group that he profits to oppress. You could think of him as sort of like this executive director in the oil sands industry, but he's personally investing in the green energy sector. We don't know what to feel and think about this guy. But God sees him as he is, hears his prayers, and he sends an angel to him in a vision. And then the angel instructs Cornelius to invite this Peter over from Joppa. So Cornelius commands messengers to Joppa, look for this Peter guy. Now the scene jumps over to Peter again. He's now at the rooftop patio around lunchtime. He's getting hungry. Then he sees this vision of a tarp carrying all kinds of these non-kosher animals being lowered from heaven towards him. And the voice invites him, Peter, feast your eyes. Take a bite, Peter. Peter says, no way, God. I haven't eaten anything unclean. I've been kosher my whole life. The voice says, Peter, don't call unclean what God has made pure, what God has made clean. And then this happens three times for Peter. Somehow it's always three times for Peter. See, it's a while for him to get it. It's always three times for Peter. Immediately after these visions, Cornelius' messengers make contact with Peter. The timing was on point. So after they've explained their side of the story, Peter is convinced, tags along with them up to Caesarea. So in anticipation of this, Cornelius, Cornelius brought in his friends, his relatives over at his place, which obviously was big enough to hold a church service. Now, Peter arrives. And then there's this throwaway line in the story that Luke wrote. This is what Luke put, uh, wrote. Peter entered the house. 
Peter entered the house. See, somewhere along that 50-kilometer trek from Joppa to Caesarea, all the way to the footsteps of Cornelius's, Peter's prejudice had eroded all away. He did not hesitate to break Jewish taboo. He did not think twice to step inside a Roman residence, which again would have made him ritually unclean. Now, something different is happening here. So inside what has become a house church, surprise, Peter, you are the guest preacher. What do you got for us today? So Peter, he just from the top of his brain, he's been preaching this all the time now, preaching the gospel, he starts preaching the gospel. But before, before Peter could even finish his sermon, the Spirit fills everyone in the house. The Christian Jews with Peter, they were all astonished. But they immediately got to baptizing everyone by Peter's command. See, even Peter's fellow Christian Jews, they were laying aside their own prejudice. It was, it was, it was such an emergency. We got to do something about this. Perhaps they did not even think about it, but they went to baptize these Roman people. See, this was a watershed moment in the church when for the first time, both oppressor and oppressed, they inhabited the same space and they become family of the same name, Jesus Christ. They become equals in the sight of God, showing hospitality and accepting hospitality alike. This was the official moment in the church that difference and diversity were welcomed officially by the leadership of the church in keeping with the covenant of grace and faith in Jesus Christ. There's a lot to unpack from this story, but we can ask this one question. Why did God go at such complicated lengths to bring together Peter and Cornelius? Right? That was a very long reading, a lot of repetition of details. Why did God take so long and complicated lengths to get them together? I mean, Jesus could have just showed up in front of Cornelius like he did to Saul in Damascus, explained to him, Cornelius, this is the gospel, believe in me, and I'll start the church with you in Caesarea. You don't need Peter, you don't need an angel, you don't need visions. Three at that. You don't need to get a bunch of people going here and there for days everywhere. Why did God take so long and made it so complicated for these two people? Well, since people are complex and God treats people as people, God treats people in a complicated way. That is to say that God treated Peter as Peter for all that he was, a devout Jew, uh, a new Christian leader, an unconsciously prejudiced man towards his Roman neighbors. Uh, he was impulsive. He was brash. And we know from before in the gospel that he had violent tendencies, right? Remember this old Peter, like a very previous Peter not long ago, trying to defend Jesus. What, was, what did he do? His impulse was to take out a sword and slice off a high priest servant's ear. That was what's natural to him, right? He treated the servant as an opponent, a barrier to overcome a door to push over, a threat to subdue, not as a human being. This was Peter from not too long ago. But Peter here is now a very different person. God treated Peter as Peter in all of his complexities. He was slowly walking with Peter on this literal journey to realize for himself his own prejudice, his own tics, 
three times at that, to be confronted by his own sin and ignorance, and to be finally brought face to face with someone who is vastly different than he was, considered an enemy. I can't be friends with you. To be tested again. But you know what? Peter was successful. He proved himself true here for the first time, perhaps. It was the same with Cornelius. God treated Cornelius as Cornelius in all of his complexities. You know, here is a powerful imperial officer with so much in command and control and wealth, but he was likely inwardly conflicted because he's an ally of the Jews, but he's a high-ranking stakeholder of an empire that oppresses them. But with all of his power, he chose to humble himself as he was commanded by this angel to bring in here from this Jewish peasant. That's a lot of faith to deal with. But God was slowly walking with Cornelius on this journey to be personally transformed, hear the gospel for the first time, and to have enough faith to choose for himself and his family to believe this ridiculous message. In the end, he and his family and friends, they became the first official Gentile converts, and they were the first family and group to be recognized by the church. Peter, Cornelius, everyone else around them, they, they did not know, they didn't realize at the time that they chose what they chose to participate in, with the amount of faith that they had to make their choices, that that would have cosmic ripple effects into history that slowly enriched the waters of this world and transformed the way you and me, the way we now look at each other, the way people are treating one another all across the world. Now what about us? What of this story for us? How does this same God continue to walk with us on a journey of transformation? How is God treating you as you? How is God treating me as me in all of your and my complexities? God is still keen on eroding away every bit of your prejudice, every bit of my prejudice. He's still so interested in doing that for you, for me. Now you may consider yourself, oh, I'm not prejudicial at all. I'm a Canadian, come on. But could it be that we are actually more unaware of our own prejudice than we dare admit, or to dare uncover into the darkness of our own hearts? That the prejudice we still have has not eroded enough, has not completely gone away. And that God is going to do something more about you and about me. So a sidebar about prejudice. Uh, prejudice is a mental and emotional process that we do to dehumanize people. Uh, prejudice separates them out into these simplistic, manageable constituents. Right? Think of it industrially. It overprocesses people like they were cattle or their chicken or their corn or their candy, making them into commodities that's so easy to just label, to separate them out into parts. Oh, they're privileged. Oh, they're woke. Oh, they're, they're out to get your kids. They're in your schools. They're bigots. They're fundies. They're oppressors. We're the victims here. On and on. See, once you've dehumanized and overprocessed someone, oh, it's easy to write them off. Oh, it's even easier to get rid of them. The Nazis, right? 
But the trick against prejudice is actually to come face to face with someone different than you. And you end up learning their names. You see their face, you see their eyes, and you learn about their story, and you discover who they are. See, prejudice shies away from that. It tries to get rid of names. It tries to get rid of stories. It tries to get rid of faces, characters, and heart. It just wants numbers, groups, labels. Right? It can't handle complexity. Prejudice wants simple categories, labels, conspiracy theories, because they're so much easier to handle. It just makes your life make more sense. But God treats us as complex human beings. He knows your name. He knows your story. He knows your face. He knows your life. He knows your character. He knows your struggles. He knows your pain. And he has made space for you in this world that he has made. There's a space right now for you in the pews beside others. More significantly, God has made a space for you in his heart. As we heard from Karen last week, welcome is not so much a welcome into your house or space, but it's actually a welcome into your spirit, into your heart. And God is still furnishing a place for all of us in his kingdom, made out of very, very different people. God does not rush anything with you. He takes his time. He doesn't jump to conclusion about who you are. But he was so interested in you as a person that God took his time and made it even more complicated for himself. How did he do that? How did he make it complicated for himself? He was conceived in a virgin's womb during a time of turmoil and famine and warfare. Going through the birth canal, he learned how to walk maybe when he was around one and a half years old. He learned Aramaic and Greek. He went through puberty. He did his bar mitzvah. He fell down, his wounds, his blood coming out of his knees. His mother had to rush and wipe it down. He was misunderstood by his own family. On and on, all the way to being unjustly tortured and executed because of the prejudices of his own people. God took his time. He made it so complicated for himself. And slowly walked with you, with all of us, all the way to the depths of our demise, suffering even the consequences of our collective prejudice and sin. That's how God treats you. That's how God treats me. And he's still treating you the same way. He will take his time. I really believe that how God is going to do something more about what's left of your prejudice in mine is that he will keep bringing different people into your life, into this place, into your neighborhood, into your backyard, even in your social media. God will bring different people, difficult people, disagreeable people, face-to-face -face with us in order to erode all our prejudice. They're going to sit right next to you. They're maybe sitting right next to you right now. You will bump into them in coffee hour. They will be in the same small group as you. You'll see them in your neighborhood cafe. You are working with them in your office. You see them comment and share these ridiculous memes on social media. But God is saying, what is their name? 
Who are they? Would you like to know their story? Would you like to discover their own heart and their own character, even though you think they don't have character? Perhaps talk to them about Jesus Christ, my son. Perhaps they will even remind you again about this Jesus whom you claim to follow. God is still in the business of bringing different people together, disagreeable people together, no matter how difficult or intense it will be. Now, at the end of that YouTube video that I was talking about with these six Israelis and Palestinians, they obviously couldn't find any common ground at all. But then, at the end of the video, there was this table that was brought out in the midst of them, and you could see this Israeli chef and an Israel, uh, Palestinian chef come out with these plates of signature Middle Eastern cuisine. And then all these wait staff, they came out with crystal and cutlery. The six young people, they were taken aback. They were just coming out of a tense debate. And they found themselves suddenly eating and drinking together. They started to smile. All of them started to laugh. They asked each other more personal questions about each other. They were telling jokes to one another. They were not talking about the conflict anymore. They weren't talking about politics or religion. And some of them were expressing how thankful they were to those that they had just strongly disagreed with for now this opportunity to chat, to eat and drink, learning from one another. See, that, that conversation resolved nothing. We know that the warfare is still ongoing in that part of the world. But there was that moment in that video that those people were together. They were together. Different people, disagreeable people. They inhabited the same space. They knew each other's names. They knew each other a bit of their stories. They shared the meal. That's a tiny picture of what God is calling us to be as Little Trinity, using this historic space of ours of 175 plus years, with the time that you have left in life, with all just the relationships that you carry, perhaps make room for new relationships to develop with different people, with people that you disagree with, people who you will never see eye to eye with. But that's exactly the point, because God is calling us to make space for different people, because that is what his kingdom is. So let's bring out a huge table. Let's bring out enough chairs. Let's get out the fineries. Let's sit together. Let's introduce ourselves. Have a name tag on. Share your story. Treat each other as people. The same way that God in Jesus Christ has treated you, has treated me, in a long manner, in a complex way. He has welcomed us into his kingdom, which is full of very, very different people, but of the same name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.